Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a mini-episode, Amana International, Part 2. Today, we pick up on stories of interaction and communication between Egypt and its neighbours. From the River Nile, we travel out to the Mediterranean, and we see how Egyptians of the 14th century BCE tackled issues like piracy and raids coming from the sea. Along the way, we even get hints of a connection between these events and famous tales like the Odyssey of Homer. It is a curious world. This episode comes to you on behalf of Cat and their father, Cactus Charlie. They are patrons of the podcast and fine folks indeed. Thank you so much for your support. I hope these tales of Egypt and its neighbours bring lively discussions to your household. To everyone listening, thank you very much for joining me. Come, let's set sail and face off against the pirates. Our first story takes place around 1370 BCE. It is the reign of Amunhotep III, the dazzling sun disk, great of strength, the one who is feared in all foreign lands. Amunhotep, the magnificent pharaoh, famous for eternity. In the reign of this king, a royal official came to prominence. His name was also Amunhotep, but we know him better as Amunhotep, the son of Hapu. Amunhotep Hapu is a famous man. We did a full episode on him way back when. Well, there is another tale from his life that I want to tell. Amunhotep Hapu had a long and busy career. He left records of it, preserved on various statues. These statues tell Amunhotep's biography, and one chapter reveals a curious series of events. At some point, the king dispatched Amunhotep Hapu to the north. The high official went to the Nile Delta, that vast expanse of green bordering the sea. Here, Amunhotep Hapu was put in charge of organisation, specifically defence. Apparently, there were some issues on the coast. Quote, I, Amunhotep Hapu, have put troops at the mouth of the road to repulse the foreigners from their places, and I am keeping an eye on the sand wanderers, the Bedouin. I have done the same upon the river banks at the river mouth, surrounded by my troops, separate from the crews of the royal sailors. End quote. Amunhotep Hapu gathered troops, perhaps a local militia, and he led these troops against enemies in two places. On the desert's edge, the warriors fought against nomads, people of the hinterland. Perhaps these nomads came on a raid, or maybe they sought pastures and land for settling. Either way, 
the Egyptian commanders resisted such movements. Amonhotep Hapu and his troops attacked the wanderers and drove them away. Then, another fight. This time, the troops went to the rivers, to the river banks and the estuaries. Apparently, another group was approaching the area. Again, we don't know their purpose. Were these maritime people pirates, coming for a raid? Or were they migrants, seeking places to live? It is impossible to know the purpose of these sea peoples on the available evidence. But whatever their goal, the result was the same. Egyptian troops, led by Amunhotep Hapu, drove them away. The Egyptians defended their territory. This tale is small, but curious. It seems to track with other events in the Mediterranean and the Levant. Across the sea, on Crete, Cyprus, and in Syria and Canaan, fragmentary records speak of movements, travellers, and even piracy. Apparently, this period saw increasing activity on the sea, and some of it was violent. Who was doing this? Well, I won't tease you, that does not have an answer, yet, but historians have a couple of ideas, and other stories from different sources may add some context. In the days of Amunhotep III, or perhaps Akhenaten, the island of Cyprus was in trouble. Raiders were attacking their settlements and the coast, and the king of Cyprus had problems with this. In fact, that king wrote a letter to the pharaoh complaining about the situation. Quote, Say to the king of Egypt, my brother, the message of the king of Alashia, Cyprus, your brother. For me, all goes well, and for you, may all go well. For your household, your chief wives, your sons, your horses, your chariots, your numerous troops in your country, all of your officials, may all go very well. Every year, year after year, men of Luki seize villages in my country. You, my brother, say to me that the men of Alashia were with them. But, my brother, I do not know if they were. If that is true, send those men back to me and I will act as you see fit. End quote. This letter is one part of an ongoing correspondence. The king of Alashia, Cyprus, wrote to the pharaoh, and the two were brothers, quote-unquote. Apparently, they even quarrelled like brothers. Alashia was suffering attacks or raids from somebody called the Luki. Now, we actually have a decent idea who those people are. The Luki probably come from Anatolia, modern Turkey. Specifically, they come from the southwest, near the coast. Later, this land was called Lycia or Lycia, and people from this region appear in many historical records, including the famous Iliad, the tale of the Trojan War. The Lycians, or Luci, were valiant warriors, and even pirates. So apparently, there is a strong connection between those communities and violence on the high seas. Anyway, some of these Luki were raiding the villages of Cyprus, and that came to the attention of the pharaoh. The circumstances are murky, but from this letter, it sounds as though Egypt's king had captured some of these pirates. In his letter, the king of Cyprus refers to messages from Egypt regarding the issue, and he says, quote, If men of Alashia were among the pirates, send them back, and I will punish them. So, 
did the Egyptians capture some of these pirates? Is this the follow-up to Amunhotep Hapu and his defence of the north? We can only guess what is happening there exactly. But this tale, and the latter, is interesting. At the very least, it seems to invoke a period of instability or danger on the Mediterranean Sea. It is possible that Amunhotep Hapu was fighting against similar people to the ones raiding Cyprus. Either way, perhaps these events were part of a larger trend, skirmishes and bloodshed across the Mediterranean. From struggles on the shore, we now move to art from the royal court. Our source for this chapter comes from a papyrus, a fragmentary piece of paper unearthed at the city of Amarna. These fragments have paintings on them, small scenes that have been drawn by an artist. There are at least two scenes in the surviving fragments. One of these scenes appears to show a battle. An Egyptian warrior is in conflict with foreigners, possibly people from Libya. The Egyptian seems to be losing, he appears to be on his knees, and the Libyans may be about to kill him. That's all we get from that fragment, and it's not the main focus. What I'm interested in is the other fragment. This fragment shows a group of warriors, or foot soldiers. They seem to be marching or running forward, possibly joining the battle that is happening. On their heads, these soldiers wear distinctive helmets. Now these helmets are not Egyptian in style. The troops seem to wear boar tusk helmets, a style of headgear made from ivory that comes from boars. These helmets are quite distinctive. They come from the Aegean, from the world of the Mycenaeans and the early Greeks. Boar tusk helmets are a high status item in Mycenaean archaeology. They turn up in graves for high-ranking warriors, and we also see them in art from the Aegean region. Items like this are expensive. To make a boar tusk helmet, the artisans would need ivory from dozens of animals. So these are prestigious items. That begs the question, why are a group of soldiers on an Egyptian papyrus wearing Mycenaean helmets? There are at least two possible explanations. Are these Egyptian warriors who are wearing imported armour? Or are they Mycenaean warriors who are serving the pharaoh? The answer is uncertain. In 1994, a couple of scholars did a study on this papyrus specifically, but they did not reach a firm conclusion on the soldiers' origins. You see, apart from the helmets, the troops are quite generic. You wouldn't pick them out of a crowd. So there's nothing distinctive in their costume or their appearance to identify them. With that in mind, it is impossible to say if these are Mycenaean soldiers fighting for Egypt or Egyptian soldiers using imported armour. If the troops are Egyptian, that is still quite interesting. It tells us that Akhenaten, or his government, was quite happy to import expensive foreign armour. As I mentioned, these boar tusk helmets are high-status items. They required a lot of effort and labour to produce. So if the Egyptian government was buying these helmets, that cannot have been cheap. Which begs the question, does this papyrus fragment show the pharaoh's bodyguard? 
the sort of top-tier units we would expect to have that kind of expensive gear. Based on the surviving picture, we really can't say. This papyrus is the only example of boar-tusk Mycenaean helmets. None of the art from Akhenaten's reign ever includes these features, so it's anyone's guess as to who these troops were, if they were Egyptian. If the soldiers were Mycenaeans, that raises an interesting idea. Perhaps in the time of Akhenaten, the Egyptian government was employing foreign soldiers. Maybe Mycenaean warriors came to Egypt seeking employment or opportunities on the field of battle. They could serve the pharaoh at home and on campaign, and enjoy riches as a reward. The Egyptian government employed many groups as army units, and plenty of Egyptian soldiers came from distant lands and communities. The most famous example is the Medjai, that elusive group from southern Egypt and Sudan. There are others, particularly from the south, but you get the idea. Foreign mercenaries, quote-unquote, are a regular feature of the Egyptian army. The idea of Mycenaean warriors coming to fight for the pharaoh? That is certainly possible. Then again, there might be another interpretation. In this papyrus, or at least the fragment that survives, the distinctive warriors seem to be helping or supporting the Egyptians. But we only have a tiny portion of the scene. Perhaps the battle itself was more chaotic. Perhaps the sides are less clear-cut. What's my point? Well, maybe these Mycenaeans are enemies, pirates or raiders on the Egyptian coast. That is speculative. We have no definitive proof for the Mycenaeans ever attacking Egypt in force. But the idea of Greeks or proto-Greeks coming to Egypt for violent purposes, that does have a long legacy. The Mycenaean papyrus might have a distant connection with events from a famous tale, the tale of Odysseus and his travels on the sea. For some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. You may be familiar with a tale called the Odyssey. It is a story of heroes and monsters, gods, fate, hubris, and violence. Composed in the first millennium BCE, centuries after the Amarna period, the tale has nothing to do with that era specifically. But there may be elements or sections that draw on long cultural memories, vague histories or ideas of Bronze Age events. At the very least, the Odyssey evokes a picture of that time, the age of Mediterranean piracy. 
The section I am interested in concerns Odysseus, hero of Ithaca, and a small interlude in his adventures. It comes in Book 14, just over halfway through the Odyssey. And here, the poet sings of a journey that Odysseus and his warriors took. Well, I say journey, it was more of a raid. And the target of this raid was Egypt. Quote, I, Odysseus, conceived the idea of making a descent on Egypt, so I fitted out a fine fleet and manned it. I had nine ships, and the people flocked to fill them. We set sail from Crete, with a fair north wind behind us, as though we were going down a river. Nothing went ill with any of our ships, and we had no sickness on board. On the fifth day, we reached the river Aegyptus, Egypt. I stationed my ships in the river, bidding my men stay by them and keep guard, while I sent out scouts to explore from every point. But the men disobeyed my orders. They took to their own devices and ravaged the land of the Egyptians, killing the men and taking the wives and children captive. End quote. The poet recounts how Odysseus and his followers set sail from Crete. That makes sense. In the 1300s BCE, Crete and other islands were dominated by Greek-speaking rulers, roughly. So the poet draws on a basically accurate idea of the region. Then the ship sails south, following the wind, and soon it reaches the mouths of the Nile. The Greeks called this river Aegyptus, which comes from the Egyptian phrase Hutkapta, the estate of the spirit of Ka. Hutkapta is a name for Memphis, the great city, but by the time the poet was composing the Odyssey, the Greeks named the entire land as Aegyptus. So Odysseus comes to the river of Egypt, and he lands his ships somewhere in that area. Interesting. So far, the story broadly matches with the geopolitical layout of the Mediterranean, Greek-speaking rulers in the north, and Egypt accessible from Crete. It's not a lot to go on, but it's a start. Then we get the fun stuff, quote-unquote. The Greek warriors are impatient, and they run amok. Soon they are attacking, raiding the hinterland, killing Egyptian warriors and seizing families. The raid is destructive, and its consequences would be dire. Quote, the men disobeyed my orders, and they ravaged the land of the Egyptians, killing the men and taking their wives and children captive. Soon the alarm was carried to the city, and when they heard the war cry, the people came out at daybreak, until the plain was filled with horsemen and foot soldiers and with the gleam of armour. Then the gods spread panic among my men, and they would no longer face the enemy, for they found themselves surrounded. The Egyptians killed many of us, and took the rest alive to do forced labour for them. I wish I had died then and there in Egypt, for there was much sorrow in store for me. End quote. The Greek warriors, the raiders, came to calamity. Their crimes in the hinterland caused a ruckus, and soon royal troops came forth. Emerging from the city, presumably Memphis or perhaps Avaris in the north, Egyptian troops surrounded the foreigners. So far, it's sounding relatively stable in terms of its description of the area. 
At the very least, there were royal fortresses in the north, so there's a good chance that Egyptian garrisons could have defended against a raid like this. To be clear, I'm not saying that the Odyssey describes an actual single event. Instead, the poet is drawing on long cultural memories of raiding and piracy in the distant past. By the time the Odyssey came about, the Egyptian 18th dynasty was 600 years gone. But memories, vague and shadowy, may have informed some of these tales. This chapter of the Odyssey has a happy ending, sort of, as the Greek warriors found themselves beleaguered, beset on all sides. Odysseus made a solution. He surrendered. Quote, I took off my helmet and shield and dropped my spear from my hand. Then I went straight up to the king's chariot. I clasped his knees and kissed them, at which point he spared my life. He commanded me to get into his chariot, and he took me, weeping, to his own palace. Many Egyptians attacked me with their spears and tried to kill me in their fury, but the king protected me, for he feared the wrath of Zeus, the protector of strangers, the one who punishes those who do evil. End quote. The little reference to Zeus at the end would fit quite nicely into the pharaoh's propaganda. As the servants and agents of Amun-Ra, of Ma'at, of Osiris, they would ideally fear the wrath of those gods, and they might honour a powerful, noble captive. Not always. There are plenty of examples where Egyptian kings were brutal to their prisoners. But at the most basic level, the Odyssey does convey something vaguely believable about a Bronze Age conflict. Now, did this raid happen? Did Odysseus exist? Did he truly visit Egypt? Those are questions well beyond this podcast. I leave it to you to draw your specific conclusions there. But whether it is a myth with a dash of historical truth, or simply historical fiction, it is an interesting tale. And when we think about Egyptian references to foreigners in their land, like the Mycenaean soldiers on that papyrus from Amarna, well, this period, the late 14th century BCE, seems like a genuinely international time, and a fascinating one indeed. In the 14th century BCE, the Amarna period, contacts between Egypt and the Aegean grew even stronger. Previously, they had been significant. Now, our archaeological and textual evidence becomes even more complex and interesting. It seems that significant events were underway on the sea and the coast. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. This episode comes to you ad-free, as a generous gift from my patrons. Thanks to their support, I am able to occasionally forego the automated advertising, which is great. I firmly believe that ancient Egyptian history should be free to everyone. Unfortunately, I still have bills to pay, so I'm forced to rely on that advertising for my income. 
I would like to take this podcast more independent in the future, and hopefully break free of advertising altogether. Subscribers on Patreon are helping to make that possible, and I am most grateful. If you would like to hear more episodes without that commercialism, then please consider joining at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For just $5 a month, you can access the podcast completely free of advertising on a special private feed. There are also additional perks, like supplementary booklets and images related to each episode. And for the dedicated enthusiasts, there are additional tiers with many more perks. Visit patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast to check out what's on offer and help me to slowly break free the bonds of capitalism and take the show independent. I would dearly love to do so. For now, that is a work in progress. Before I go, I would like to extend my special gratitude to Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Niden, Stephen, Ashley, and Mark. These wonderful folks joined the Patreon as priests. And thanks to their incredible generosity, I am able to send warriors to defend the northern coasts, and perhaps dispatch ships to raid the islands of those miserable Mycenaean foreigners. <clears throat> um, I mean, I can equip ships with gifts for our wonderful Greek friends. Either way, the priests make that possible, and I am eternally in your debt. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and I will see you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.